You're listening to the Walled Garden Podcast. This podcast is a part of the Walled Garden Online Community, a community dedicated to sharing and discussing philosophy, beliefs, ideas, and creativity among all types of people in order to gain new insight on some of life's biggest questions and make the most of how we live. We appreciate you joining us. Hello and welcome to the Walled Garden Podcast. Today, I have for you our very final masterclass with Kai Whiting and Leonidas Konstantikos. Uh, now, these two have been extremely generous with their time, giving us a nine-part masterclass series on Stoicism. And we're rounding things off today with a conversation about Stoicism and God. So definitely something that we can fit into a 45 to 50 minute episode. Uh, but nonetheless, you know, this is a, an overview. And so uh, you're going to find some very interesting ideas presented to you in this episode. And I will let you know that our conversation with our supporters who came along to the meetup actually lasted maybe an hour after the uh, initial lesson from Kai and Leo. And so, man, we had a great time really kind of dissecting these ideas, uh, you know, uh, really getting to know these concepts uh, in the kind of group Q&A setting. And so if you would like to hear uh, this episode in its totality, you know, with, uh, with the conversation afterwards as well, including all of the other conversations that we've had uh, uh, in this masterclass series, then you can go to the walledgarden.com and you can join up there and all that is available on the walled garden. Uh, and so you're going to get uh, the whole masterclass, including uh, our, our masterclass on the unity of virtues, the equality of errors, uh, the dichotomy of control, circles of concern, character, love, cosmopolitanism, and of course, this one on God. And do remember that if you're going to join up with the caretaker membership, you can use the promo code practical stoic uh, all in caps uh, and that's going to get you a discount uh, for the first hundred members on the world garden now i do want to mention also that it's no mystery that kai and leo are so well versed in this philosophy uh, because they have written a book together about it i highly recommend that you grab yourself a copy it's called being better stoicism for a world worth living in and i will put the notes sorry the uh the links to where you can grab that book in the show notes and please give them a good review if you enjoy the book and that's just another way to say thank you uh, to these two amazing individuals who have taken so much of their time to share with the world uh, their wisdom and their understanding of Stoicism. So again, Kai, Leo, thank you so much to both of you. And as you all know, this is not the end of our collaborations. There's going to be much more in the future. So please enjoy this masterclass on Stoicism and God. Welcome, everybody, uh, to, to discuss uh, this idea of Stoicism and God. Uh, and I wanted to just give a, a little brief uh, summary of my own kind of experience with this topic and Stoicism. Uh, obviously, because many of you will know that I've recently begun studying theology um, and, and have been kind of led on that path through many, many different, you know, experiences in my own writing and also just experiencing the uh the absolute deluge of um this kind of wrestling with the idea of god both in the stoics and just in all of the ancient writings in general like that you know this was this was not a topic that they thought was uh not serious that it was not a topic that they 
uh, felt was uh, uh, trivial in any way. It was something that so many uh, people in the ancient world uh, were really trying to figure out uh, earnestly, honestly. Um, and, and so for me, I, I started seeing all of this and thinking, um, you know, there's something to this. I got very interested in it. Even just this idea that obviously in the ancient times, uh, or, or sorry, more, uh, you know, uh, more recent times, but uh, it was said that theology was the queen of the sciences and philosophy her handmaiden, you know, and I started really thinking about that. Like, what does that actually mean? Why is, why is this the case? Um, and there was a moment there on my Facebook group when somebody joined the group and um, one of the answers to the question uh, that they had was, well, the question was essentially, why, why are you here? Why are you interested in Stoicism? And um, their answer was, I, I'm looking forward to getting to know this godless philosophy or something like that. And then, then I started to think, hang on, uh, no, Epictetus talks about God a lot and prayer a lot and, you know, divinity and, and so does Marcus Aurelius and so does Seneca. I mean, I want to read you guys something today from Seneca that just blew my mind because I was, you know, really undergoing a kind of a, a massive personal transformation in, in the past year and a half where really trying to grapple with these questions. And, you know, I was having a genuine um, experience of, uh, of, of trying to kind of open up some of these mysteries in my own mind and see, see where that, where it took me. And so when I actually read this from Seneca, this is in his first book of his uh, natural questions or his first letter of natural questions. When I read this, it just blew my mind. Cause I thought, man, Seneca uh, is having a lot of the same sort of thoughts uh, experiences in the mind that I, I feel I've been um, I've been having and, not to, to say that I am anywhere close to figuring out the sort of things that Seneca may have figured out, but um, I just read this and I thought, this is such a good picture of perhaps how some of the ancients felt about this question of God. So anyway, he says this, I, for one, am very grateful to nature, not just when I view it in that aspect, which is obvious to everybody, but when I have penetrated its mysteries when I learn what the stuff of the universe is, who its author or custodian is, what God is, whether he keeps entirely to himself or whether he sometimes considers us, whether he creates something each day or has created it only once, whether he is a part of the universe or is the universe, whether it is possible for him to make decisions today and to repeal in part any sort of universal law or fate, whether it is the diminution of his majesty and an admission of his error that he had done things which had to be changed. If I had not been admitted into these studies, it would not have been worthwhile to have been born. And then he kind of goes on to talk about, you know, what really are we here for? Is it just here to like, just eat and fill our bodies. And, you know, like he, he, he goes on to make this point. It's like, what is the point of all this? If not to question deeply, to wrestle with these questions, to try and gain some sort of understanding of the cosmos that we're a part of, you know, before we inevitably die. But that, that line there, you know, if I had not been admitted into these studies, my life would not have been worth living. That's crazy. You know, for somebody to say that and to mean that in their writing is absolutely wild. And I just started thinking, Seneca really took this seriously. And there's a couple of other things that I just quickly want to read you here because he also says, 
yeah, he says the mind cannot despise colonnades, uh, paneled ceilings gleaming with ivory, trimmed, uh, what is that, shrubbery, that's it, uh, and streams made to approach mansions until it goes around the entire universe, looking down upon the earth from above, an earth limited and covered mostly by sea, while even the part of the sea is squalid or parched and frozen, says to itself, is this that pinpoint which is divided by sword and fire among so many nations. Anyway, I'm going to stop there with with this because there's so much more. And if you want, if you want to really get a sense of how Seneca felt about this question of God, go read that first letter of of his Natural Questions. It's really beautiful the way that he writes about it. But so when I read this, this is kind of the final thing I say. You know, I was also I had in mind this idea that that Jordan Peterson taught a lot of people, which is hey, go back to the Bible and take a look at this word Israel. What does Israel actually mean? Where does it come from? Israel means they who wrestle with God. So the Israelites, the the Jewish people, they are the people who wrestle with God by definition. That's the thing. So it's not a matter of just blind belief. It's not a matter of just saying, I'm with God. You know, it's no, like, wrestle with the question. And we see this with Seneca. Look at all the questions that he asked about God. It's like, you know, does he do this? Does he do that? Is, is this? He's asking all these questions and he's trying to get to the bottom of something, right? All the while knowing that it's way too complicated. He uses the word mysteries. It's way too complicated for him to grasp in totality, but he's wrestling with the question. That's what I love about Seneca's passage there. And so in in a way that has all led me to being very excited to actually start to wrestle with these questions, not to just immediately assume that our ancestors were idiots or, you know, uh, just had these completely blind beliefs in something that they had no idea about, but to assume that there was a, as it said, you know, this central animating spirit that, that they were trying to kind of understand to allow it to inspire their minds to higher thinking. And so uh, that's, that's why I wanted to at least tag onto the end of this masterclass series today, uh, this idea of God. And I'm going to throw it over to Leo and Kai, because obviously they're going to teach us about the stoic conception of God. Um, and before I do that, Kai and Leo, our very last, you know, meet up today. And thank you so much for all the effort you guys have put in. This has been unbelievable. I've got so much positive feedback from people all around the world who are really getting so much out of this. And this is not the end, uh, but it is a pause in in what we're doing here. So uh, thank you. And please open up the conversation uh, for for Stoic God. All right. Um, well, it's been it's been great, um, Simon and Kai and everybody. Yeah, it's been a, it's been a pleasure. Um, and let me be honest, like um, I've always felt like because I'm surrounded by people who really understand this stuff, and I just can't I can't just get away saying anything. I've been researching my ass off every every time I do this. Right. So I want to thank you guys for for making me do that. Okay. Yeah. Let me just tell everybody. Like after pretty much every session. Kai has come to me as being like, Leo just sent me like pages of notes this week. He's just, <laughs> you know, he's just been going absolutely nuts here. And so, yeah, like Leo, the, the, your work has paid off seriously because you're, you're really helping a lot of people to get this sort of stuff. So great work, man. You, you've been, you've awesome. been brilliant. Awesome, man. And it's been helping me too. So I'm very thankful about that. I got to tell you, let me, um, I want, I'd like to, I'd like to kick off this section just by stating that 
I'm in some respects, I'm very lucky that as an international relations theorist, I come with from a political assumption about the Stoics and their view of God, right? Um, why am I saying that? Because of especially the strain we see now in contemporary Stoicism, if that's a thing, right? Um, that they, you know, how much do we need the Stoic conception of God and so on and so on? I find this, I find this very interesting. Um, and I'm going to leave it to philosophers like Marcus to decide uh, how much pantheism is like atheism. Um, for me, I struggle with it a lot. I don't think they can be the same. If like, if something is all God and nothing is God, I don't possibly see how these things can be the same thing, right? I don't see how, how pantheism can be a sexed up atheism. Um, but I'm going to look at it from political assumption of identifying as a thing is not enough to be actually to actually be that thing, right? So, for example, I can't I don't I can't just claim to be a Latino because I watch telenovelas, right? I mean, I have to in some respect be incorporated by the people in that community. Uh, that's just a political assumption. We can argue that, that that assumption some other time, but that's the assumption I'm kind of going with with the Stoics. Now, the Stoics we love are all dead and gone. What we have left is their writings. So. I'm, my question is, to what extent would, a, would, would the ancient Stoics have accepted a Stoic that is an atheist? And through and through, uh, and the more I read about this, like as I was doing research for this, I was wondering, I thought, I remember, I was like, I remember there being some arguments for the existence of God. I'm going to try to find a few of them, you know, it, just everywhere I went was just argument after argument after argument or claim after claim after claim, whether or not those, some, and many of those arguments are not very good, but still like, my the position I'm 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 on is like the Stoics would not have accepted a, an atheist Stoic as a Stoic, right? And it's not like they didn't know what atheism was exactly or who you know what the atheist position is. They knew who the atheists were. There were you know uh, Zeno's philo philosophical mom, right? His Crates's wife, right? As he's training under under Cynic philosophy, was sexually assaulted by an atheist. Right in in one of the in one of the stories, so they knew who the atheists were. I mean, the Epicureans were the closest things that came to atheists, probably in to some respect as well, right? Um, and to them, maybe at best, the gods just don't care about uh, humanity, things like this. So the atheists, or sorry, the Stoics are pantheists through and through. Now, they're in a sense also, like you mentioned, Simon, some of them are are pantheists plus, right? So they're pantheists as their their prima facie view on God, but also some of them have a very um almost an, the anthropomorphized God more than others, like Epictetus does, right? He says, oh, I have, um, you know, he talks about God all the time as having uh, will and desires. And um, also he, he talks about his, his, his little temple in his own house, as in the corner of his house, right? Where presumably he has the, the gods of the Roman, of the, of, of the, of the Greeks and Romans. Um, but even the early Stoics, this just isn't a, a Roman Stoic thing. The early Stoics just wrote book after book after book on gods. And I remember this one, it's like looking at it, there's this one um, thing that, that, that Chrysippus says, and I thought it was so important that I, I, I wrote it down here. Um, Chrysippus says, for one can find no other starting point or origin for justice except the one derived from Zeus and that derived from the common nature. I mean, to me, that's like case closed, right? I mean, even just to do ethics, you take you're taking this this point of view that okay, God exists at least in, as uh, as the logos, as common nature, as natural law. God exists, and then we can do everything after that, right? We can study ethics, we can study uh, physics and logic at, after this assumption. Now, so what does that mean for someone like me that's been studying this for so long? And I, I 
for me, stoicism is like, is for me, stoicism, I got to tell you, I am comfortable not calling myself a stoic, right? I'm saying like the stoics, we all love are dead and gone. So what can we learn from them? Rather than saying, rather than starting from, from me planting my flag is I'm a stoic. Now, how can I change stoicism to fit what I'm talking about, right? To me, this is useless. Okay. This is not what I'm doing here. Maybe some, someone else can do that. I'm not doing that here. So for me, it's like, okay, well, what is, you know, what are the ancient Stoics trying to tell us without changing them necessarily to fit what I, what I, what I think. And I think that um, through and through you get this pantheistic approach to, to, to God. And um, there, there may be some kind of problem here in the sense, like, for, for example, I just recently got back from my first time at the Grand Canyon. Right. And everything everybody says about that's been there is true. Like, no picture or video you will see will do justice to this, the, the holiness and sublimity of the Grand Canyon, right? If I try to put it in words, what am I telling you? Yeah, it's a big hole in the ground, right? Which it is. But none of that gives this justice to the, the, the sublimity of it. So to some extent, uh, the, 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 the Stoics are writing book after book after this, and they're, 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 they're seeing this logos that we use as words, and they're seeing this common, this, uh, uh, this, this homologousness hum, hum, uh, or homology, right, between the words that we use and the rationality of the universe and the reason, reasonableness in human beings. And the closest thing I've found that will help me, I'm not saying everybody who's into Stoicism has to view it this way, but for me as an international relations theorist, it's the closest thing I can see to it is like uh, the anarchism of the international world. Okay. Like the international world is made up out of, uh, from units in the system. And from that, the, the, the anarchism of, of it is just the structure, you know, the structure, the way it's set up, the way these things must relate to each other. It's separable conceptually from the units in the system, but only conceptually. The way the Stoic God is inseparable from the stuff, from the, the, from the units, if you will, of the cosmos, and it's only separable conceptually from this. It is something imminent through and through, and that's the way I read the Stoics, right? Yeah, thanks, Kai. And, and sorry, Leo. And, and Kai, did you want to jump in there? Um, actually, can I, just, can I just first, I'm going to say one thing, because you know, you mentioned that you're kind of diving back in now and you, you start seeing all of these arguments for God open up. And I, I, I recently realized that there's a real like perceptual problem with reading. There's many perceptual problems with reading, right? But one of them seems to be that if if you're not looking for something, you you may not find it, right? And 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 if you do start to open your mind to looking for something, it'll appear, right? And I I noticed this because I went through a large period there where I was very similar to the you know a lot of people where it's kind of you know looking at stoicism is it what what can it do for me just as a philosophy, not necessarily as a theology. And so I wasn't interested in what they were saying about God or the divine or providence or anything like that. And I, I went back and I read this quote that I had highlighted from Epictetus, right? And I'd highlighted this passage. And then I decided to keep on reading the part that I hadn't highlighted. And then he goes on to start talking about providence and God and all this sort of stuff. And I'm like, I didn't even see this. I, I wasn't interested in it. And that seems to be like a real problem with reading, right? It's like, like, how do you, how do you even get yourself to that stage where you're like, where, where it's not just about like highlighting the part that particularly pertains to you, right? But it's like, what is he trying to say here? Right. And, and I just didn't see it. And I think many people might be like that, especially with something like stoicism, but Kai, I'll let you jump in as well. 
I mean, it was quite funny. Last weekend was StarCon and people were, no, well, a friend of mine texted me and said, I said, Steve Kerr, he won't mind me saying that, the guy, yeah, another podcaster, he was like, Kai, your fingers must be really sore because you're really banging on that keyboard. And I was banging, I was banging on the keyboard. I think you were asleep at that point, but I was ferociously banging on that keyboard precisely because people were saying, because Massimo Pellucci was basically saying we didn't need to start God. And I was thinking, well, so I had to type, right? I just felt just driven, probably like a, possibly like a maniac to kind of say, well, it's not like this obscure thing, is it? It's not like tucked away in a particular fragment that no one's ever seen before or, you know, something, you know, one particular story just mentioned it off the cuff, you know, and maybe we can ignore it. This is actually the core of stoicism because I'm like the whole virtue ethics hangs on that. There's just, there's no there's no way I can hang my coat on an atheistic peg. There is just no peg to hang it upon. So I was saying like to people, I'm not saying you should be stoic, right? That's not my business. And I'm not going to tell you, you know, oh, you know, you shouldn't call yourself a stoic if you don't believe this. But it seems quite critical to me in the same way that Jesus Christ dying on a cross seems critical to me, to Christianity. So it's like, for me, it really is like saying, well, our virtue ethics doesn't require a innocent, you know, a innocent lamb to die on the cross and to be the perfect sacrifice, which is why his bones don't break, right? The reason why Pontius Pilate marvels that Jesus is dead is because his legs are not broken and he's died in record time on the cross, which is why they check that he's dead and they separate the blood, that they, they stab in the heart and they separate the blood and the water. If you take Jesus Christ away from Christian ethics, you don't have Christian ethics. What you have is some kind of ethics, but they aren't Christian. So I was thinking, you know, when Lane and I said, even when, and it was in his notes, I thought it was brilliant. Even when, even if atheism is true, that doesn't make it stoic. Like the question is not, is there God, is God true or not? It's, is does stoicism have any space for it to be atheistic in interpretation? And in, if you're going to look at the, what this ancient, if you're going to base your stories on what the ancient Stoics wrote, the answer is absolutely not. There's just no way you can interpret the Stoics as in an atheistic interpretation. In the same way, there's no way you can interpret Christianity without, you know, a Messiah. <laughs> it, it's fundamental. When you take away the Messiah, you have something else. So if people were a little bit more, I don't know, like, well, it, it's it's a new Stoicism, which is why I really like Lawrence Becker in the way that he did it. He said. He said, this is not stoicism, this is a new stoicism. I can argue about the name, but he didn't claim it to be stoicism. Because people say, well, is it so fundamentally important? And it's like, well, yes. You know, one aspect, like Leo was saying about being Latino, might be, it might be that you watch soap operas or telenovelas. That might be the case. But it's really hard to say to somebody, you are not Latino just you have a Mexican passport and you say, well, I'm, if most Mexicans are considered to be Latino. That does seem to be quite integral to my claim of being Latino. So I also feel like having a God, regardless of whether God exists or not, that's really not relevant to does, can stoicism exist ethically without a God? The answer to, for me is no. Why? Because Cleanthes, Christ to Zeus, Chrysippus has proofs. Again, not all the proofs are good, and some of the proofs are definitely not good, right? Not, I'm not questioning that. Epictetus, Bacedonius, Spherus, like all of them. It's like, hang on a minute, every single Stoic, bar none, bar none, said that there was a God and that virtue was an objective thing based on the Logos, which was God. 
So the only Stoics that I can find that claim otherwise are people like Matthew Pelugi, who has recently come out and said he doesn't really see himself quite as a Stoic anymore. So I was like, and this is what Leonidas has spoken about with me with the Lipsius trap. Like sometimes we bend, you know, bend something so badly that either we break or it breaks, <laughs> but, but we can't continue. So in, in that case, maybe Massimo's belief system in Stoicism broke. I don't know. I'm not going to speak for him. But one has to one has to break. So you break Stoicism to something else. I'm not saying it's not valuable. Again, I'm not questioning whether it's valuable. That's a different question. I'm not questioning whether it's true. I'm in terms of is God true, but I'm saying you just I just can't see. There's no way that I can see it. Having spoken to A.A. Long and Chris Gill and other academics, how you can really claim to be living stoicism and say there's no God. And that was a very long-winded Simon. So I apologize. No, no, seriously. Like, and I, I think if if I could, if I could just um, you know, maybe push back on one thing. Like I'm I'm very interested in, you know, what are what are the actual arguments that the Stoics make for God and are they reasonable? Do they and and not necessarily to say that the question of God always needs to exist in that uh, realm of human reason because there are limits, right? There are limits to how, how much we can uh, truly discover with, with, with this capacity. So, uh, you know, to me, I'm, I'm kind of wondering, you know, what did they say about God? What was their argument? And, and also I, I, I would just push back in one area to say that I'm less interested in, you know, um, uh, does does taking God away um, uh, kind of ruin ancient Stoicism? To the Stoics, I, I, you know, I kind of always would have felt that, you know, Seneca and Epictetus and Marcus Aurelius and Masonius, they probably all would have said, hey, listen, if you can show me how I can have ethics without God, then I will gladly come over to your way of thinking and I will gladly update the philosophy to make it. I think that they would have said that, right? Because truth to them surely stood on a higher realm than, well, a whole bunch of ancient Stoics who I have ascribed to believed in God. And therefore I have to also, you know, they would have said, well, let's update the philosophy. And if we're, if we're, if we're just kind of in mythological terms, if we're just kind of feeding off the dead corpse of our ancestors in this philosophy, you know, like, and just trying to reach back and grab onto that, like we've got to allow the living waters to flow into the philosophy. But one of the ways we do that is, is by actually respecting our ancestors enough to say, well, maybe they were onto something here. What were they onto and where were they just psychopaths? Right. And we've got to balance that, right. We've got to balance those two worlds and, and bring them together so that we actually rejuvenate the culture. And so I, I think if I could throw it over to you guys, um, maybe just give me, you know, a, a few of these arguments that you saw for the existence of God. And if I could also just add on to that, you know, I'm very interested in this idea of the Logos. Obviously, the, the Stoics had a high importance on the Logos as this, this, uh, this, I mean, it's kind of like the central animating spirit. It's right. It's like, especially of Western culture, it's this spark within that connects you to the divinity of the whole, allows you to turn, uh, you know, you know, turn things to order um, by by the way that we name things. And, and and I just want to say this as well. In my study of Seneca, you know, you take a look at how the early church fathers of Christianity actually believed that Seneca was kind of like a proto-Christian, right? Like he was around that time, like he was born at around the same time as Christ. You know, he, you know, he's, he's, he's kind of in that world when Christianity is kind of just 
floating around, starting to bubble up, right? And a lot of the way that he talks about God and, and his ethics, it's like you can put that next to the sayings of Christ and it's like there's so much similarity in the things that they say there. But um, it's just interesting that there's that kind of mixing of the worlds. You can almost see Christianity as taking a lot of these Stoic principles and incorporating it into this Judeo you know, or Jewish tradition as well. But anyway, nonetheless, I want to throw it over to you. What are, what are some of these main arguments that the Stoics are making for God uh, and how do they see God? Okay, Leo, can I just jump in sure. just for one sentence? Say, I think if you could prove to them there was no God, they'd have no eternity personally, I think, but to leave Stoicism because it hinges so much. In the same way, if I could prove to somebody that Jesus Christ didn't die on the cross and was risen again, I don't think there's any Christianity to rescue. But I'll now throw it over to Leonidas to tell you why, why they... They'd, they'd have to abandon it because of because of the way that arguments perform. So, Leigh, if I throw that now to you. Yeah, so um, of the stuff that survives, right, you get the impression that most, most of the time they didn't feel like they needed to argue for the existence of God. Like, it was it was a claim, right? So um, when they did argue for, for God, right, so um, there are there – are, so when they felt like they had to, you get the impression, all right, and this is a, a little speculation, but it's not far from, it's not far from, uh, you know, the mainstream here, that there, so many of these arguments are kind of to remind themselves or to have themselves like go to like dicta in order to be able to respond to something or to kind of base the rest of their, their thought on this. But you like, um, so, so some of the, some of these arguments are specious, but there's a few major, uh, major like uh, streams here. So one of them is like the, the cosmological argument, right? Basically, you know, the because the, the when you look at the when you look at the world, you you understand that it wasn't made for anything else but human beings. Therefore, someone had to make it take with human beings in mind. Um, kind of the same way, if you see a mansion, you understand that it wasn't made for the rats; it was made for the human beings in it, right? Um, so things like that, or, like or for Chrysippus, for example, he has like three arguments that that come down to us, and one is the appeal to prophecy, right? Like I said, not not all these arguments are good, but if we can have knowledge of the future or knowledge of the divine, then if someone can can prophesize, then that prophecy must come from somewhere, so it has to come from from the divine. All right. So an appeal to prophecy. I think on its best day, we could, if we're being super charitable to this argument, to me, it seems something like meteorology. If I can have knowledge of the future, if I can, if I know whether or not I have to carry an umbrella this weekend, right. Or, or three days from now, then I have to understand that there's some rational order to the cosmos. And that rational order is God. That's the most charitable way I can put this argument. Right. But for, for Cleanthes, for example, there was also an appeal to fear. Like during astronomical events, particularly when, you know, if you ever see like a kind of a close up shooting star, it, sometimes it can be quite scary. And the ancients, imagine the ancients not having the scientific knowledge that we did, like they would, you know, they would see these astronomical events. And then th that up for, 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 uh, for Cleanthes, that appealed to fear, like the first thing you think about was God. And to him, that was God saying, you see, I did that, right? Another one was an appeal, like a part of the cosmological argument was this appeal to orderly beauty. So it was like an aesthetic judgment in the world of how beautiful it is. That beauty must have been done um, by God. 
Um, and the different different Stoics, when they do argue for God, they kind of argue that whether they have, they have differences whether or not uh, it's the fixed the fixed stars are the substance of God, or whether God is the air, or whether God is a fire, right? So they all kind of put their spin on it, but none of them are doubting God's existence, and none of them are doubting um, uh, the, the importance of God in Stoic philosophy. Now, there's there's someone the closest I've seen about someone doubting it is one line from Panaitius and one line from Marcus, and both of these aren't very aren't very uh, aren't very doubtful of God, right? So Panaitius, um, at one point, he doubts the conflagration and he doubts prophecy, right? So he says prophecy, maybe it's all BS, right? <laughs> Something like this. That's the closest you'll ever get. Not doubting God, just doubting that prophecy, you know, can exist. Um, and the ekporosis, the, the conflagration at the end, kind of like their equivalent of a big crunch, right, uh, of, of, uh, as, as, uh, as, as, as what happens to the universe at the end of it. Like the Stoics thought that they would all, it would all turn into fire at the end. It would all just like, turn into fire. Like he kind of doubted that that was true. But none of that suggests that he doubted God is true. Now, Marcus, at one point, the famous line in contemporary circles is like um, Adams or Providence. But through and through, Marcus rejects the, the, the merely, av, um, merely Adam's part to say that, well, there, there's providence and there's there, whatever you want to take providence to be in Stoicism. That is, uh, that is basically the Stoic view of it. So to me, to take that away is kind of, well, let me be honest with you. And I'll, uh, just to put a, put a point on it, for me, calling oneself a Stoic in the ancient sense is like calling oneself a Roman legionary. Right. Like, yes, you can be very tough. You can be a, you can admire the Roman legionaries, but in what sense are you a legionary outside of your own mind? Even if you have the, you're wearing the Lorica segmentata and you're waving around your gladius, right? There's a reason we don't fight in maniples anymore. Right. You can, you know, you don't have to be a Roman legionary to be super tough, just like you don't have to be a, a, a stoic to be, uh, you know, resilient and kind, compassionate, tough right so what do you get out of it by calling yourself a stoic and not accepting like the claim after claim after claim not even saying that you have to accept every argument for god but just a claim after claim that the stoics are saying about god all right yeah and i'm, I'm certainly going to have to have a conversation with you about prophecy at some point because that's that's been the uh that's been my whole topic of uh, uh of of um with my assignment recently and my whole class, my, well, my first class of in theology was studying prophecy and very interesting, um, very interesting things to say about that. But nonetheless, yeah, Kai, did you want to jump in with anything there? I think it's also like, when we think about it, the reason why we have so little historicism is because so many people rejected it. Like we are now rejecting the very little that remains. The majority of historicism is gone. It's destroyed. And thank you, church. Like, thank you so much for like doing that. It, it, you did the contemporary strikes job for them. If the very little that remains, you're going to now burn. Like this is this is the challenge I have. Like we have so little that remains, and yet time the little that remains talks about God all the time or draws upon the logos. And now in contemporary circles, we're like no. That's not that's not what we want in life. And it's like, well, that's probably why we don't have the Republic, because the rich people who didn't want to, you know, the, the people to rise and didn't think homosexuality was an indifferent. We're like, no, we don't want those values coming into our society and dirtying it. So it's like, why, why are we doing that? Like, again, I have no issue that someone says to me, 
I really like aspects of stoicism. I really enjoy this part. I do believe for some reason that I can't prove that virtue is the only good because that was the argument that I was banging on with a keypad. But like I was saying to everybody who was going, yeah, there's no such thing as God. God is not rational. Can you rationally prove to me that virtue is the only good? And no one could. Although Greg Lopez said to me, yes, within stoicism, I can do that. I said, but that's assuming that stoicism is correct, Greg. All you're doing is moving that turtle down one, going, yes, if I assume that stoicism is correct, I can therefore show that virtue is the only good, by the way, I need God to do it. But let's ignore that fact for a second. But that's assuming that stoicism is correct. So you still have to go, I'm assuming without any evidence whatsoever that the stoic framing of this argument is the correct one. And if it is the correct one, then this follows, right? But you still have to have a faith-based claim. So you remove the God-based claim and you say it's just virtue just because I want it to be, basically, because it's my preferences and my values. Is a Becker argument that the, re the reason we know how to be virtuous is because of our values and our preferences. I'm like, you're obviously not in my field. I actually said this to you once. So you're not, you know, you're not in the environmental field. We don't see it that way because our preferences and values have destroyed the world. We have a climate breakdown issue because, um, you know, international relations must be exactly the same thing. The reason why we're at war is precisely because of our preferences and values. They don't necessarily take us down a virtuous route. They might do, but that's not necessarily the case. So I, I, I remind the atheistic interpreter, interpreters, like, you're just moving the faith-based claim to something else, whatever makes you happy, but you're not removing yourself from the empirical proofing, proof that you want. So they'll say, prove to me, you know, you can't prove there's a God. Well, you can't prove there isn't. Like, that's why I'm like, it doesn't, it doesn't matter, because I've said to people before as well, it doesn't necessarily matter what's true. What matters actually is what you believe to be true. And that's the case for everybody. Like a lot of people do things, um, crazy things or good things because they believe it's the right thing to do regardless of whether it actually is or it isn't like for example i i spoke to, to sarah about something very you know cancel culture i believed it was the right thing to do now whether that was the right thing to do is is, is debatable it's questionable and judging by the the hate that ensued i certainly think it was the right thing to do but other people would take that as a consequence go, that was a terrible thing to do all that hate like no this is precisely but that's just that's a value judgment right I'm not basing that on some objective, you know, necessarily objective value of God. So I, I just try to remind agnostic interpreters or atheistic ones, they're just moving the faith-based claim elsewhere. They can't get out of that problem. And with David Hume, they can't get out of the fact-based facts and value distinction. I know there's like Philippa Foote has argued against David Hume. Yes, there are philosophers who've said David Hume's claim is not a correct one. But that's debatable. That's why we're still in debate. The reason why it's debatable is because we're still talking about it. So I just feel like they can't escape that issue. And I don't have an issue if they say, for I don't have a problem with people saying, well, I don't really want to lean on, on God. So I'm going to do exactly what you said you did, Simon, of I'm going to be blinkered. And every time I read about God, I'm just going to ignore the fact. I'm just going to wipe it from my memory matrix style, just not going to see it. I don't have the issue with that. The issue that I have is that people go around and tell others that if they believe in God, they're not being, quote unquote, modern, which is why I think I said before that originally the, the contemporary stoic main website was called Stoicism Today. And the modern part came in when people said we should kind of try to update the ethics by removing God. And I'm like, I'm not really sure that was reasonable, acceptable, or, or necessary. And I, I would much rather people just said, this is stoic influence rather than stoicism, because 
at which point the stoicism no longer have a stoic flavor. And I would argue strongly when you remove the logos, there's no stoicism left. I don't know, Leonidas, if you want to Can we talk to this logos for a moment? Uh, And and also just also, Kai, you mentioned virtue. Uh, You know, something Seneca says here, he says that that special virtue which we seek is magnificent, not because to be free of evil is in itself so marvelous, but because it unchains the mind, prepares it for a realization of heavenly things and makes it worthy to enter into an association with God. So what's Seneca getting at here with this idea of virtue being the thing that gets us into an association with God? Right. So I, I, this is off the cuff, right? I would, I would like to have seen that, that whole uh, section in, in, in context. But what Seneca, one of Seneca's points is that God is the kind of thing that is perfect by nature, right? Human beings are perfect when, when they're perfect at all is by effort. So by, by perfecting ourselves, that is when we're just in the right shape or in the right tension with the universe, with the rest of God, right? So that's Seneca's, uh, Seneca's view kind of through and through, right? Just kind of like God cannot face the evils that we face. We can overcome the evils, right? God can't do that, right? So in that sense, Seneca says, we're actually in that, in only in that sense, are we superior than God? God cannot face the evils that we face. We are the ones that have to face them and overcome them. But that being said, Seneca is also like notoriously cynical about religion, right? And St. Augustine kind of, you know, if you'll pardon the pun, he nails him to the cross on this one. He's like, he's Seneca, you're worse than the actors. At least the actors aren't trying to persuade you that they're that they they are who you know that they're they are the role they're playing. You are, right? You're standing there next to Nero, like shake, you know, nodding your head or whatever it is supposed to do as the whole procession comes through, pretending you believe in these things and you don't. And Seneca understood this. And even the early Stoics, you go back to the early Stoics, they'll say, like, yeah, the sage will lie if when he if he is a statesman, right? So the sage will put on this face like religion is true, right? Religion is very is the way we should live, but understand um, that there is that this is just things people say. I mean, Cornutus, the Stoic, wrote like through and like through and through. He wrote an you know taking these ancient myths as a way to explain the world around him. Chrysippus scandalously um, kind of gave like a, a theory for the the beginning of the world, beginning of the cosmos, as a, a, a story about sex between. Um, between Zeus and Hera, right? And this was outrageous, but he's using this as a story about how the world was made. So they had no problem using these stories. And they were almost like, and I forget the name of the secret society because it's kind of off the cuff, but there was a secret society that thought that human beings should be given like, uh, should be made, um, you know, should be given their religion, but the, the elite will know that there's only this pantheistic God, right? So I, I see that I read the story something like that. And like, like Zeno says, um, nothing by human beings is worth very much. And te- temples are made by human beings. So temples are not worth very much. So even though he's willing to say like God, the God of a city should be Eros and this should be worship because it provides concord. Still nothing, nothing we say about God could possibly be do or, or we or nothing we do about God even like even building temples is worth very much because it's built by human hands kind of like the way me trying to explain the Grand Canyon to you you just kind of have to see it for yourself right and I think the Stoics like look that's the logos unfortunately words can only take us so far and I think I think the Stoics um, were very very 
optimistic about how much words can accomplish. I tend to be less optimistic. Like for us, knowing what we know, uh, words aren't invented to explain things like words are invented like, okay, when it, when there's no rain here, there is what you can find water on the other side of the ridge or there's food in this hole. That's why how us, you know, we apes developed, uh, words right now we're trying to explain god with it the stoics were a little more optimistic than we were about the how how we can use words for this but even they understood that no matter what we say about god at the end of the day nothing none of this is worth very much you just kind of have to accept this pantheistic view and then make some arguments later about uh, appeal to fear appeal to uh, the, the the beauty of the universe this kind of thing right Okay, yeah, well, I, I'm going to have one more question here. Um, and then I'm going to bring everybody in because I know that we've been taking up a lot of time here, which is great. But I, I, I want to throw you guys to the lions as it were. Um, okay, so, <laughs> so I, I want to talk to that idea of, you know, words as this, this, uh, the, 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 these things that allow us to kind of break down the world into its parts, because it seems to me like part of the logos and this does relate to prophecy as well, what I'm about to say, um, but I'll leave that to aside for now. The Logos to me seems to be this principle that, okay, the world is perceivable, perceivable through pattern and symbol. It's it's perceivable through that there's, there's a hierarchical nature to the cosmos, you know, and you could even say that, okay, well, to to be atheists, perhaps believe that human beings and our reason, you know, to place too heavy a, 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 a bound on reason is to say that we, this is the highest thing in the cosmos at the moment. We can perceive things because we have this thing called reason, but nonetheless, there's, there's this hierarchical nature and you might want to think from time to time, well, what is above me in the hierarchy of the cosmos, right? Like, am I it? Is this the ceiling? Um, and so if you could, either of you perhaps talk to this hierarchical nature that, you know, Marcus Aurelius certainly talks about, um, or, or just the patterned uh, way that we can view the cosmos. And it seems to me, by the way, just quickly, if you see the kind of hierarchical nature, see the pattern, I'm, I'm doing that because it seems to me like it's something that can help you to see that over time, you know, history has a cyclical nature. And, and in a way, isn't that what some of these prophets were doing? They were seeing the cyclical nature of history. They were seeing the the patterned nature of time and 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 the cosmos, and seeing that we're on the cusp of a breakdown that I've seen before. <laughs> you know, like and that's that's what we're all trying to do here. But anyway, so I, yeah, can you talk to the pattern, the you know, the hierarchy, nature, that sort of thing? Oh, we can't hear you. Uh, you're on mute. Ah, okay. Sorry about that. Um, I think you bring up a really good, uh, really good point. And I got to tell you, this is a part of the Stoics that I kind of find very interesting. Is their their view of this conflagration, this eternal return, right? For example, we're living in a world now where it's quite similar in many ways to the Bronze Age collapse, right? Um, and there's a, there's a book written about this, um, and I'll I can find that for you later. Layers about the prophesy, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. But it, what is interesting to me is like, since at least Kant, and Marcus could probably tell you better this, more of this than I can, but at least since Kant, we have a progressive view of history, 
right? That um, for, for Kant, at least in his, in his political works, he's saying human beings can improve and nature itself will help us improve. Because we cannot perfect ourselves individually, <laughs> nature will help the, the um, will help human beings improve till we eventually perfect ourselves. We'll have a world without war. We'll have a world of perpetual peace. We can have perpetual peace of all of us killing each other of, and, and the perpetual peace of the graveyard or the perpetual peace of a federation of republics where it'll be, um, well, it'll be big cosmopolis, right? Now, since Kant, you have you know Hegel and Marx, and we have kind of a, a this 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 progressive view of history. The Stoics didn't think like this. The Stoics had more of a, a political realist view, what we might call now, or like Thucydides' view of this kind of uh, that this will always happen in in the political world. Human beings, scumbags that they are, will constantly have war happening, right? And just in the, in the physical view of of Heraclitus and the Stoics of this eternal return. So. I, I like this very much. I think that this is very like the world that we're in is very like the Bronze Age collapse in the sense that it wasn't just one civilization collapsing. It was several because of their interconnectedness. And the ones that managed to scrape by, like Egypt, were just barely managing to scrape by. And the ones that didn't were just saw climate change, uh, refugees, right? The sea peoples that came out of everywhere, take, you know, taking over and, and being blamed for much of the destruction that probably wasn't their fault anyways. So you have this through and through, and I see something like that again. The Stokes, it, it would have been a, it, it would have, they would have accepted this kind of eternal return. I think that is the part of God for the Stoics that is most relevant to us, not this Kantian or Hegelian view of progression of history. I, that is not my understanding of international politics, right? My understanding is this return and return and return of uh, more of the same. And we'll, the, I think there's. Uh, at least an analogy, if not homology, between the political realm and the physical realm of this eternal return with uh, what was happening in, in, with with climate and the earth and civilization. Uh, and I like I like the Stoic view of God, not so much like what you were saying. And you were certainly right about the this hegemonicon, the the ruling faculty of the war, of the cosmos. Where is it? There's got to be one, right? Because we have a ruling faculty like that. The cosmos must have a ruling faculty. So they certainly did think that. But they also, like uh, on the flip side of that coin, they also saw this interconnection, this web of connection between everything, the hegemonicon, the, the ruling faculty, and everything else, and the uh, this this web of connection of of everything in the cosmos, which is why prophecy worked, right? In the way we might say the the, the way why we can make theories and predictions about the future in the you know at least meteorology, but yeah, I would say even to some extent in the political world, right? We can make these we can make these prophecies, if you will. I'm doing air quotes here. These prophecies, if you will, because there is a there's a pattern to this, and the point is to understand the pattern. When you understand that pattern, you've understood the Stoic God. You've been listening to the World Garden Podcast. For more episodes just like these, or to join our community, go to thewalledgarden.com. See you there.